spend a lot of time on the Hyperfast Wealth Show, teaching our listeners and viewers a lot about investing in real estate. Today, we're going to teach you how to invest in a lot of other things. Our guest today has spent time in the private equity world, large corporations. She has been a major player in the cannabis industry and is now teaching entrepreneurs how to acquire small businesses. She is a contrarian thinker and she is amazing. Welcome to the show, Cody Sanchez. Welcome to the Hyperfast Show, where we believe unlimited growth in business and life is created by surrounding yourself with people who have been where you are going. Learning from others allows you to compress time and grow hyperfast. And now, here are your hosts, Kerry Shaw and Dan Lesniak. Kerry and Dan are real estate developers, best-selling authors, billion-dollar agents, and million-dollar agent makers. And now, get ready to grow hyperfast. All right. Welcome to the show, Cody. How are you doing today? Life's good, man. Thanks for having me. And where you're, you're uh, broadcasting from California, right? I am. I'm in San Diego today. It's beautiful outside. Awesome. Well, we've got a lot of interesting stuff I know that we're going to talk about today. Cannabis, what you're doing to help entrepreneurs buy businesses, which I think, and I know you do as well, is something this country needs right now. So I'm excited yeah. to talk about that. Before we jump into all that great stuff, though, why don't you tell our listeners and viewers out there a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are right now? Totally. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I think the interesting part that, like you mentioned, is I've always looked for ways to use capitalism and commerce for some type of contribution. And so I've never really been a big believer in. Um, you know, purely giving, you know, saying that somebody else needs me in order to succeed. Instead, I'm like, let me help enable you to grow and to succeed and to make a ton of money or whatever your life goals are. And then we all have like kind of this virtuous circle. So that's why I'm excited about the small business buying thing, because it's stuff that I'm actually ticked off that I didn't know, you know, over the last 15, 14 years being in private equity and alternatives and investing that I should have applied to buying my own businesses as opposed to building other people's big businesses. So anyway, I think my whole entire career has been that. It's been like, I figure out some sort of code that, you know, is there's some insiders that know it and I figure it out and I figure out how to apply it somewhere else. And so, you know, I think I told you this story, but I started off as a human trafficking and, and drug smuggling um, journalist. And so I was covering these really horrific incidences in, in Mexico and in towns like Juarez and Agua Prieta and Tijuana. And, and what I realized pretty quickly, my last name Sanchez, is like, you know, the Sanchez that lived down there had a very different life than the Sanchez that is Cody here in California today. And I remember thinking, Dan, like, why? Why do I have all this opportunity? And can I like build the life that I want? And these guys and gals can't. And what I realized at the time, and I was, I was a senior in college when this happened. I took my senior year and did a, in my honors thesis on going south of the border and writing about this stuff. And I realized like um, the only real difference is, is money. It's that I have an ability to have different socioeconomics than these guys do. 
and I understand this language of currency or money maybe better than they do. And so my life looks a lot different than theirs. And, and when I realized that, I thought, well, I need to understand this, this thing that is money because I came from a family that, you know, we were fine, but we didn't really have all that. My dad didn't get to go to college, you know, came from immigrants and the American story, right? And, um, and so I thought I better go understand this. And I finagled my way into uh, Vanguard, which is one of the largest asset managers, into their accelerated development program. Then I went to Goldman, where I worked in their alternatives and their investment group. Did that about 2007, 2008. So awesome timing on my behalf. Um, and then I went to State Street to build out their institutional business. And then from State Street, I started looking at their business. And I was like, you guys should be doing some more stuff in Latin America. And you're not. Let me go run it. I'll do my job and I'll do this job. But you need somebody to build that. So they let me do that. It was pretty successful to the tune of billions. So I left to a new company called First Trust, where I built out their entire Latin America distribution business. That business ended up being a very big business, um, at least for me. And, uh, and then I exited it and um, went to a new emerging market, which is cannabis private equity and, uh, and venture capital. And so I invested first in 2014 into this fund and then a series of other funds and investments, and then finally came on as a partner because I think this is just another generational wealth creation event. And then while all that's been happening, um, I'm just a curious human and I, I get a little fired up thinking about what's happening to um, employees and to business, small business owners in the US right now. And so I was talking about this with some of my friends and said, what could we do to teach more people how to do what we know how to do, which is business acquisition, M&A, and do it on small businesses because there are millions, 2.5 million small businesses right now that are looking for buyers. And if you've walked down any main street, I mean, you're in DC, you can walk down any main street and see one out of four businesses, small businesses are, are shuttered. And these are permanent shutterings. And so how could we prevent that from happening except by going out and teaching more people to get in before the business owner can't handle it anymore? and provide some new capital and some new uh, interests in moving that business forward. And oh, by the way, you can use future sales in order to fund a lot of business acquisitions. So it doesn't just have to be big PE funds and VC funds like ours that come in and buy. It can be, you know, it's not for everybody. There is hard work there, but it can be a lot more people than it is now. And if that happened, we'd all be feeling a lot better about where the economy was. So we're trying to do our little part. Well, it sounds like you've definitely got a history and track record of kind of skating to where the puck's going to be, identifying the trend before hopefully, you know, everyone else catches on like what you did in South America, what you've done in cannabis now, what you're looking to do in the small business world. What do you, what do you think is the commonality or the, kind of the common thread uh, between yeah, all, well, all of those areas? Yeah, well, I mean, one, I think, um, like all entrepreneurs, I'm I'm always curious and I'm looking for what is the next thing that's going to to develop growth. But I think the other part is I I have a, a newsletter called Contrarian Thinking, and I talk about contrarian arbitrage on it, which is basically what is everybody saying? So what's the common narrative? And then if in, instead I apply like common sense to it, does it make sense to me? And usually there's a huge gap between what everybody is saying and what the reality is. And so, you know, for cannabis, the huge, the contrarian arbitrage was, wait a second, 
double digit people are continuing to consume cannabis each year on an increasing level. And yet it's federally illegal and there's no money in the system. I'm not a rocket scientist, but at some point that's going to come to a head. I want to be there before it legalizes. And with the small businesses, it was the same thing. It was like, how come nobody knows how to do this? And, you know, my, my uncle Eb, you know, he had a plumbing business that did millions of dollars in revenue and he actually just passed away last week. And, uh, and he didn't even know that he could sell the business. So he wound down an entire business that he could have sold for probably millions of dollars, at least using even his future sales. Uh, but he didn't do it because he didn't know how. So I'm all that I'm not that smart. I just am like, wait, narrative is this and commonsensically, shouldn't there be a solution? And finding that arbitrage opportunity in between, I think I learned in journalism and I, I applied it to business. Actually, I feel like this happens in a lot of areas in life, especially right now, not just uh, business. But why, why do you think it is that this group think sometimes can be so pervasive, even amongst like people that are probably, you know, regarded as, as experts? Like, why, why is it that, you know, just the masses just miss out on some of these opportunities that to someone like you look fairly, you know, clear, visible. Obvious. Yeah. Well, one, you know, to the first Indians go the first arrows, right? So I don't even know if we could say that these days, they're probably getting in trouble. But, you know, I, I think there is true to the, you know, whoever the first explorers are, there's lots of, there's lots of naysayers. And so because a lot of us operate really from, we want people to like us instead of, we want to be respected. I'm perfectly fine if you don't like me, but you're going to have a hard time not respecting at least some of the things that I've done. And so that, but that was hard. I mean, that took me a while, Dan. And I mean, you were a military guy and I feel like you guys get so used to that. You know, my husband, he, he could care less if you liked him or not. For me, that took me years and years to get comfortable with. But I think first is that when you're out there in front saying things that is not common narrative yet, and especially saying things that um, take some thinking about, uh, people don't like it. You know, people have never through history as humans, you don't want to stand out from the herd because when you stand out from the herd, you get into trouble. You know, that's, and you know, we, we as humans, we, we started out a lot more violently than we are today. And so I think that's just ingrained in us. So one, people want to be liked. It's hard to be liked when you're challenging the status quo or the common narrative. And then on top of that, there's a lot of negative feedback loops. So, you know, if you're early on something, they're going to be right for a period of time. You know, I can't tell you when I got into cannabis, some of my biggest mentors at like KKR, Carlisle, you know, Blackstone, the big, big firms, we're like, Cody, you're ruining your career. You are ruining your career. You'll never be able to come back to traditional firms. You have a great track record with names like Goldman and, you know, MBA from Georgetown on it. And now you're, you know, you'll never be able to come back. And I was like, you are going to call me in two to three years and ask to invest and or buy my business. And, you know, and they were like, that's cute. No. And so it took some, you know, we say in Spanish, some huevos to like get out there and uh, and get comfortable with that. But I think that's why. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I think people like to think they're contrarian or rebelling against the system, but but only like if they have safety and, and numbers. So there's just very few people that are truly willing to 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 
to do it first. I, I do think the the desire to be liked plays plays a part in it, and I, I think the lost loss aversion also plays totally a, a part in it. Like you know, people will take bigger risks just to not be wrong. I think there's been tons of studies that show that. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, my one of my partners in the cannabis fund at Entourage, Entourage Effect Capital, he has been a longtime tech investor. And he said, you know what it's like being a tech investor that's at the forefront? It's like opening the door and running through a dark black room. And uh, only when you open the next door in front of you do the lights flip on behind you and everybody else sees the door that you were running towards the entire time. But then you get into the next room and it's a black room again. And then everybody thinks you're crazy until you get to the next door and then the lights flip on. And I, I kind of liked that analogy. I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, I know personally, I can't, I mean, even just in talking about micro business acquisition and the fact that you can use um, non-traditional funding sources, AKA you don't have to be a multimillionaire to do this. People are like, that's not true. No, you can't. And then I literally, we're going to do a live buy a business event because I'm like, you guys, not only is it true, but I've done it multiple times. So it's not like every time somebody's going to do the deal that you want them to do. You got to kiss quite a few frogs, but is it possible? 1000%. And I was just talking with the CEO of Flippa, which is an online marketplace where you can buy and sell online businesses. And he has case study after case study of, you know, small businesses that were bought by people who never thought they could buy a business. And then simultaneously of sellers, like he has one example of this lady, Karen, and I loved this story and she was retiring. So she was in her sixties or seventies and she owned like crochet Karen or Karen crochet.net or something. And so, it's an interesting time to, to have a business with Karen in the name, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Good thing she sold it a few years <laughs> yeah. ago, poor thing, or maybe be more valuable today. People would like want to watch Karen's angrily crochet. But she, so she had this business. It had some revenue that came from like affiliate links and selling some stuff. And she just listed it. She didn't know. And she was able to sell the business for $90,000. And $90,000 to her at retirement changed her entire retirement. I mean, that set her up to actually be able to retire completely differently. And so like these stories are everywhere, but for some reason, people don't want to think they can be an owner. And maybe other people don't want you to think you can be an owner. I don't know. Interesting. And, and, and I know we're going to dive into the small business acquisition a, a lot, but before we kind of go there, I want to stick with the uh, the cannabis for a minute or two. Yeah. Uh, you, it sounds like you, you took some flack or resistance up front. Was there a moment, you know, after that, like a year later, two years later, where you were like, now, now I'm right. And, 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 and here's the proof or like, what was that feeling like? Was there a moment where it was just obvious that, that, you made the right call on that? Yeah. I mean, I think when we first returned uh, all of our investors money plus in fund one uh, in the quickest amount of time that I've ever seen a private equity fund return capital, that felt really good. You know, I, I kind of don't believe things until, until you show me the money, you know, and, and you see that they actually work. So the fact that that worked, I was like, okay, here we go. And then when, you know, our first company listed for a billion dollars on the stock exchange, that was pretty cool. 
And then when we had like five or six companies that were all worth a billion dollars, I was like, well, that's also cool. And then I think when we started to get some like bigger investors, you know, multi-million dollar investors, that was cool. Um, and I think those were all parts of it. And and then the other part that's interesting is, you know, we just started to get a ton of attention. So, you know, I've never had a PR agent. I've never um, paid somebody to do marketing for me or to get me on, you know, media or shows or whatever. And we started getting all of this outreach and, um, you know, being seen as experts in the space. And that almost more than anything cinched it for me because I was like, yes, we're getting results. And also we're able to spread this message to more and more people, which is going to help more of our portfolio companies and normalize it. But besides that, I can't think of like one individual moment, except maybe like standing on a few stages where there's like 25,000 people in the crowd and you're explaining to them the cannabis opportunity. And they come up afterwards and we're like, I used to think that cannabis was a bunch of, you know, stereotypical stoners. And now I understand something completely different and that this could be an institutional market. And so I think that's just going to accelerate. I mean, the big moment for me is going to be when I know uh, what I know will happen, which is that, you know, some sort of banking reform is going to happen and eventually it'll be descheduled, it'll be decriminalized and it'll be legalized. And then we're going to look very smart tonight, feel very confident in that happening, as opposed to sometimes in a company you're like, I think this is going to be successful as an industry. I, I, you know, I did bet my bottom dollar that it, that it would be. So we'll see. And I know just from previous discussions and uh, with, with you, fund two has, you know, you, you did the second fund that closed out. Now you're in the middle of starting the third fund, correct? Yeah. So we, when we talk publicly as private equity and venture capital investors, it's a little funny. We have to be careful and talk oh, about shit. this fund family. All right. No, Sorry. you're all good. Oh, I didn't yeah. know if I broke some SEC rule or. No, not at all. You're golden. You can talk about whatever okay. you want, but we talk about it as a fund family. And, uh, and, and it's really, it's like goes back to these rules to protect accredited and qualified investors. Um, but yes, we're actively, um, you know, investing in companies and, uh, and doing deals. And that part is always super interesting. Gotcha. And what's, what's your, um, if you're allowed to say, like, what's, what's yeah, your exactly. industry, uh, outlook right, yeah. right now? Like, yeah. like, like, obviously you've done well, but is it, is it too late? Right. Or is there more, yeah. is there more, is there more runway still on this? Yeah. I mean, we talked about this a little bit, but I, I mean, it's interesting when we were investing in the other funds, you know, if you were to look at the, the stock market return in the cannabis sector, you know, it was at all time highs. Right. And there was definitely a lot of frothiness in the market and we knew that. And so we put in some provisions to make sure we invested in companies that were thoughtfully moving forward. Um, and we were at good valuations or if they weren't at good valuations, we had provisions to pull back some money if they didn't hit the milestones they said they were going to. Um, and so, you know, previous to now, you've gotten into the cannabis market, but at really high valuations, right? Because it's this massive growth industry. And now uh, the industry is at some of the lowest valuations uh, that we've ever seen. And that's because there was a big reset that happened from like middle, early, uh, early Q2 of last year to now, where the entire market really cratered. And so that's created a lot of what we see as opportunity in the market to go out and acquire and invest in companies that are still growing, that have like great growth numbers, but they don't have the capital to fund the growth. 
And so in a market where everything else is at all-time highs, um, I think this one's an interesting play at a possibly very devalued level. And so we're very bullish on the cannabis market and particularly the private company side because valuations are great and consumers are, well, they, they're consuming. And what's, what's the process there, you know, as, as the investor, are you like combing through hundreds of these companies, kind of seeing which ones are run the best, but just need, need more of the professional operational uh, skills plus capital, yeah. or how do you, how do you kind of pick the ones and are, are there a lot of them out there? Yeah. So there's, um, you know, there's a lot of deals. Not all deals are good deals. We tend to invest in companies that are doing 10 or 20 million plus in revenue or have an unfair advantage. Like let's say that, you know, a former, you know, CEO or something of InBev is starting a cannabis company and using the entire ecosystem and structure of InBev or Constellation Brands that, that we might do at a lower revenue, uh, lower revenue level. But for the most part, we're investing in these what we call growth equity stage companies. So they're already doing tens of millions of dollars in revenue, but they need more money to scale their growth. And maybe they haven't operationalized well on some parts of their businesses, um, but there are sort of two companies, two types of companies we invest in. One are these platform plays, which are like really strong companies that do that $20 million and above that we can help do add-ons and strategic M&A in order to create what we think will be the biggest companies in cannabis that will be bought out by strategics as legalization happens. So we try to get these companies to like 50 or $100 million in revenue. And then also we're looking at distressed deals where the companies aren't, you know, for some reason or another, there's a valuation opportunity where they can be priced better and maybe they're running out of capital or maybe they were poorly managed in some way, but they still have great sales. And so we can essentially recapitalize them, bring in an operating partner to run them with us, and then take those companies and turn them into platform companies or add them on to our platform companies. So those two things are what we do. And we're very actively involved with our companies, which I think is a differentiator in the space. Hey, hold that thought for a minute. Do you want to get my best-selling book, The Hyperlocal, Hyperfast Real Estate Agent, for absolutely free? This book has helped tens of thousands of real estate agents, and now I wanna give it to you for free. All you pay for is the shipping. Look, you can go on Amazon, read all the five-star reviews, and pay $14.99, or you can go to hyperfastfreebook.com and get it for free. All you pay for is the shipping. Again, that's hyperfastfreebook.com. Get your copy today. Again, hyperfastfreebook.com. What's the, uh, the commonality between this and just small business in general that kind of allowed you to you know, see the opportunity over there and to start, you know, transitioning, you know, transitioning into that market. Yeah. So I think, well, so I started doing the unconventional acquisitions is the name of that business. And we started doing that basically as a passion play. Um, we really did it because we want to get people back to work. And we think what's happening to small business is criminal. And, um, you know, my, uh, you know, husband is getting out of the military, uh, fellow Naval Academy grad like you. Um, and he um, and a lot of his friends are, are want to operate and run companies. And, you know, it's a stereotype, but I think, you know, a lot of military guys are great at coming into a system that's already in existence and operationalizing it and creating hierarchy and structure and process. And so we are just helping people one off do this. 
And anytime I'm helping enough people one-off do something, I try to create a course or a guide or a blog or something on it because I can't replicate myself indefinitely. And so that's how it started was, you know, these guys were wanting help buying businesses and I know how to buy businesses in a couple different industries. And so we were helping them. And then in order to do that, we bought a couple businesses. And so then I was like, oh, well, this is interesting. We bought a couple businesses in this space and we are now like cash flowing off of these businesses. And once I bought a few, then I started getting a ton of, of deal flow. So we started investing in more businesses and then that just sort of rolled along. And then I met uh, Ryan at GoBundance years ago. I was talking about this on his podcast, not dissimilar to this. And, um, you know, he told me that he had made, you know, some of these courses and had built out this infrastructure for his businesses. And so I was like, well, why don't you do this with me? Because I don't have a lot of time to do it, but I can tell you the content and the right way we should put the content together. And if you know how to do all the backend operations, great. And then we'll donate uh, a bunch of the profits to charity and get more people employed. So a little virtuous circle was the idea. What, what kind of businesses did you start off buying? One, and the second part of this question is, how did, how did you find them? Like, was it through a broker or word of mouth, marketing? Yeah. So um, the first, uh, well, I've been buying businesses for a while. So we have a few, but we've, we've bought, there's sort of like three categories that I like when it comes to businesses. So I like professional services. So B2B, selling services to other businesses. I like services that you sell to consumers. Uh, and then I like what's called sort of uh, structured systems. And what I mean by that, some people say this is like SaaS, uh, but I don't, I don't really buy SaaS companies. It's a little above my pay grade uh, from a tech perspective. But what I mean by that are businesses like online courses, e-products, you know, uh, IP on books or information. So we buy those kind of businesses and then plug them into our ecosystem. And so I've bought, um, you know, I've bought a podcast, bought into a podcast production company. That one, uh, there's an operator that actually runs it. I just gave him money and take a rev share. I bought into um, a, a laundromat, a couple laundromat businesses. Uh, we've bought land, um, small amounts of land in order to put campers on them. That's a weird little, <laughs> a weird little deal. I think I, um, I think I saw that one in the, in the last newsletter, right? Like you're buying camp land that uses campsites near national parks. Yeah, exactly. We yeah. ended up, we went on a trip to Zion and stayed on one of these like campsites that doubles as a cattle ranch. And it's near Zion because all the Zion places got closed down for COVID. And then uh, the national campsites were all booked. So we couldn't figure out where to go. Our friend got um, smart on it. And we ended up staying at one. Didn't think anything of it until another girlfriend of mine told me that she buys these campsites or they're like an acre of land in sort of areas near national parks or near cool camping, you know, areas. And, uh, and she bought, she's like, yeah, I buy acres for like 10 K and then, um, I put them on Airbnb and hip camp and I add, um, uh, like maybe a fire pit or some like little touches to them. And I have somebody else operate and manage them. And I make like $1,500 a month for a $10,000 investment. And I was like, wait a second, let me do the math. The return on that is ridiculous from a percentage standpoint on a yearly basis. And then we did some like- Wait, but that was, that was monthly though? Monthly. Oh, wow. So that's, because 15% a year would be 
pretty good, but that's that's fifteen yeah. percent. That's fifteen percent a month. Huh? Yeah, that's one hundred and eighty percent return in a year. Now, mind you, that's gross, right? right. So no costs uh, in it. I imagine there's costs that are associated with. I haven't listed mine yet, but whatever costs Airbnb takes or Hip Camp takes, or if there's a Stripe collection fee, and then whatever you charge your property manager. But even even if say all you make is I don't know, 500 bucks or a thousand bucks a month, your break even is so soon and quick um, that I liked that idea. So we, we invested in some of those. Um, and, and really the only way that I got to do this is my husband got out of the military and uh, had some time. And so before he took on a job, he started making some of these acquisitions that I told him how to do. And then I was like, man, anybody could do these if they were driven and knew the process, let's process it out. Wow, that's that's uh, insane. I mean, just I, I read it in the newsletter and just hearing it again, like that that much per month is is crazy. Like even even if it dries up in six months because campsites open back up, you you already you pretty much own the land free and clear at that point. <laughs> exactly, and then it's kind of cool because then you own. I mean, and there's there, so here's the things you got to look out for. What is what is the zoning allowance? What is the sewage uh, management allowance? Do you need to have some sort of uh, system set up for bathrooms? Some sites you don't, some sites you do. Is there a property tax that's high in that area or is there a land tax that's high? So there are some, but all of this stuff is, you can chat with a real estate agent and then you know, like any of the businesses that I'm doing, the one thing I don't like about this is you can't really use debt. You have to have 10K to put down, right? I think you can get land uh, you can't get de- debt on, on land, but it's just harder. It's very hard. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've, I've so, looked into it for some hunting land and it's like, not, it's not hard. I mean, it's, it's hard to get the financing compared to what I'm used to. Exactly. Even in this environment with rates. So you do have to put the cash down, which I didn't love. And that's why I like buying into some of these small businesses, because, you know, if we buy a laundromat and the laundromat does 60 to nine, let's just say 60 K to make it easy. Let's say the laundromat does 60 K profit. You buy businesses based on their profit in the small business range, not based on their revenue, which is different for us in the um, you know private equity venture space. We buy based on revenue, not profit always. And so if you buy them based on profit, the typical uh, multiplier is the business is worth 60K in profits. You buy it for two to three X. And, um, and so you could just pay, you know, you could pay 180 bucks. Um, but better than that would be to go to the seller and say that you want to do seller financing and use future sales to pay over the course of three years. And you'd be surprised how many businesses allow that. And so we do a lot of deals like that, or we do a lot of value added deals where I'll say, we already own this and we're going to help you with that, like marketing or client acquisition or whatever. So I want a percentage of your company for that. I'll put in some capital but typically on those, you're like break even one month or two months in, but you have to already have an ecosystem to do that. Like you could do that with a lot of businesses, but maybe everybody listening would have to start with straight up seller financing. And what's the, what's, what's the risk of, of like, I assume a lot of these businesses you buy and look at don't have a ton of people. All right. And so maybe there's a lot of key man risk, owners heavily involved. How do you account for that when you're evaluating companies? Yeah. So in the cannabis business, that's everything. It's a total people play, especially at that level. Um, you have a lot more assets to work with there. So that gives you more wiggle room and you're, you know they're more likely to succeed because they're doing 10 or $20 million in revenue and 
probably, you know, a decent amount of profit. With the small businesses, uh, I typically, if I buy them straight out, I need an operator to go in on them because I just don't have time with my main business to actually operate these businesses. I just own a percentage of them. And the best way to find operators, like if you're you're in our, our uh, group, uh, Dan, and so in the mastermind, you'll see one of my friends, Lisa Song, she's a, she's a genius about finding operating partners for her businesses. So basically she has a cupcake, an alcohol-filled cupcake business, <laughs> um, I know, and in Vegas, so it works great. So she has that business. She owns a Christie's real estate franchise, and she owns um, a bunch of male uh, pack and ship centers. She has a few other smaller businesses, but let's say those are her top three businesses. And she has operators that run all three of those. She doesn't run them. She just ran for office actually, uh, which shows you how much time she had. But um, what she does is she goes to her group of friends. She always chooses operators from her friends. She looks at who her friends are and thinks like, who are the hustlers or like the former athletes in college or people who are underemployed, but like successful at being, you know, underemployed or people who are even not underemployed, they're, they're doing well, but they want to be an owner instead of an employee. So she chooses the, the devil she knows from her network and pulls them in as operators. And so for the male pack and ship centers, I think those make like 50 or 60 K profit each year. So not giant, but um, she brought in one of her friends who was a cocktail waitress and in Vegas, cocktail waitresses can make a lot of money, but you know, you don't want to do that forever. And you don't want to be an owner at some point. And so she pulled one of them out that was, you know, a real grinder and like, you know, worked a ton of hours and had saved up. And, and Lisa took all the uh, cash risk and uh, her friend took all the operational sweat equity risk. And then she structured sort of a three-year vested equity schedule for her to earn equity for working in the business. And so that's, that's the model that I take is I bring in operators to run almost everything or I invest in companies that already have an operator. And does, does the owner, you know, the previous owner, the seller, do they ever stay on or have an earnout or how does, you know, does that ever happen? Yeah, totally. Depends on what type of business. If they're, if they are a seller that is looking to sell, I typically don't let them stay on for a long, there's a transition plan. They can stay on to get some cash revenue if they want. And we structure it that way, but I wouldn't trust them to run the business. So if they're already up for sale, that means you got to create some sort of operational transition plan because their mind is already out of running that business, right? The second that you, you know, figure out the way that you're going to structure the cash payout, they're going to pull back. But if it's a, if it's a business that's not up for sale, for instance, you know, my partner, Ryan is looking right now at a, an accounting firm and this accounting firm, the guy's running, he's growing, he's doing his accounting firm. And Ryan basically said, we should have you operate a few more accounting firms. Let's do some M&A and buy some other accounting firms. I'll show you how to do it. I'll structure the deal, whatever you operate all of them. You take a bigger cut of the deal, but I'm going to take a cut of the revenue uh, because I'm going to help you bring these deals and operationalize them. Then I'm going to back out. And, um, and so you can run it a couple different ways. The typical way for like a brand new person, if you've never bought a business before, or you've never run or built a business is uh, to keep it cleaner and you're going to be the operator, but there's typically like three different ways they do it. There's like the investor, which would be like me or Ryan, we come in, give capital or give access or something. And then there's, um, the person who's looking for supplemental income. They have like our, so they're probably like a part-time uh, executor or business uh, operator. And then there's the um, replace your job and that's full-time operator. 
and they want to go and run this business instead, uh, or a few of them. So there's definitely different ways you can structure it. Do you think this is a time period because of you know the amount of small businesses that are, are owned by baby boomers and yeah. the lockdown that there's like a great buying opportunity now, but it, it could go away if bigger bigger companies start playing in this space or do you think that they they have that interest ever or what's what's the yeah. deal there because you probably I saw that in the cannabis right like, yeah yeah i do think that w- here's the difference um these micro businesses like small laundromats and uh mail centers and you know uh, accounting firms this already exists these roll-ups or pe investing of them at a higher level so once you get into 10 million dollars in revenue private equity firms are all over you, you know, and they're looking to buy you in varying ways because that's how those guys become billionaires is they roll up companies and sell them. That's private equity 101, but they need scale. They don't, they're not good at taking a company that's only doing 60K profit and taking it all the way to where they need it and to scale it. It's, it's really very similar, I think, to real estate in a lot of ways. You saw the Blackstones, like they don't go and buy individual properties for the most part. They buy pools of property, right? Like so groups of them put together. And that's the same thing that is in in this world, except buying businesses, it's not as easy of a template, right? Like in buying real estate, it's kind of like, here's the mortgage, here's what it costs, here's the IRR, here's the cap rate. Like it's it's been commoditized somehow, but buying businesses has not been commoditized yet. And, and, you know, when you own a house, yes, there's some property management stuff that you need on top of it or a series of houses, but that, that property management aspect is always kind of the same. When you have a business, that's, it's different. It's just, you know, businesses are changing. You got to keep evolving. So I think we'll have quite a while before this becomes completely commoditized, but I do think right now in particular, we have a unique valuation opportunity, but I don't think it's something that you only have for the next year, for instance. Gotcha. Well, this has been great. We're uh, going to run out of time soon. Before that happens, I want to make sure we get to the hyper fast round. If you're ready for some rapid fire questions. And yeah. All right. What's your biggest piece of advice to a new investor? It could be, you know, someone that's investing in anything. Don't have FOMO, you know, be more cautious, be, be happier about the bad deals you've passed on than the good deals you got into. So it's okay to go slow. Yeah, I agree. Whenever it seems like whenever you miss out on like a good deal or a good property, something better comes along. Um, yep. Yep. What's the biggest challenge you've ever had in business and how did you overcome it? This is going to sound a little ridiculous, but I think the biggest challenge I've ever had in business is actually stepping up and into whatever my own belief in myself. It took me a lot. I mean, I was an employee for a long time. There's nothing wrong with that. Employees are great, but I'm, I know that I'm not the type to be a great employee. I'm just not. And it took me a long time to say, I'm going to go and figure out how to do this by myself. I've never been the type to come up with like a billion dollar business idea. Like, Oh man, I know I'm going to create YouTube and then I'm going to do it. I'm not that. And so that's why buying businesses for me was perfect because I could buy my revenue that would protect my income stream. So my biggest challenge was getting out of that employee mindset, that, you know, constrained mindset and being like, we're just going to figure it out and we're going to do it ourselves. And you're capable. If you uh, could, could 
go back in time and, and take the knowledge experience that you have now, what would you tell, tell yourself from, you know, from when you were starting out? I mean, one, God, I mean, I think investing early is so important. And I wish, I'm sure you wish this too. I wish I would have started building and buying businesses a billion years ago. Like I would take, if somebody said, Cody, you could have a hundred million dollars right now and be 60 or even 50 or Cody, you have $0 and you know, none of the success you've made, but you go back and be 10 or 15. I'd go back and be a 10 or 15 any day because the knowledge that I have now on how to go and scale is a game changer. And so, um, you know, I think I, I do spend a lot right now on learning, but I wish I would have spent more earlier. I wish I would have spent more on getting more revenue streams because it just allows you to focus on the stuff you want to focus on. You can't really hide passion, even if you try to for a long time. That's, I think, why people get depressed or sick or alcoholics or whatever. It's, it's like you're beating yourself down into a life that you probably shouldn't be in. Um, so I'd say, like, start earlier, start building, start thinking like an acquirer and read and follow people that do that. And so it's good that they're listening to this show because they're already getting that. When you're not uh, buying businesses or doing doing cannabis funds or, you know, all, all that good stuff. Uh, what would we find you doing? You know, I'm, I'm really actually enjoying, uh, like a little bit more downtime and less travel now. So I think the biggest thing I'm doing now is like working out, surfing, you know, open water swims, um, spending time with a little pup we've got, we tend to be pretty active outside. And, uh, but, but that being said, I'm kind of a nerd. My favorite thing to do is to think about this. What are different ways to play this game of business? So maybe I'd be doing that more over a glass of wine and not getting up at 4.30 in the morning and getting up at eight instead. I don't know. Where do you see yourself in five years? Oh, this question's so hard. Um, <laughs> I every, think, everybody got it wrong <laughs> five years yeah, ago. Yeah, so. I know. Actually, that is true. Um, <laughs> who knows? I, I want to do more of this. I mean, I think the biggest thing that I hope to see is that we had a huge exit in cannabis um, and then it's legalized and we've been sort of vindicated on that and all the benefits that'll come from it. And then I want us to own a bunch of really cool businesses. And you know what I really want in five years? I need to become way better at operate, operationalizing all of my businesses. And so that's what I'd like to be is really have gotten to the level where I'm like, man, these systems and processes all work. We get to oversee them and just think about the cool stuff as opposed to be in the business grinding as much as we are. And, and candidly, I'm, you know, even today, I'm not there yet. We're really involved in a lot of our businesses. Uh, but I think one day we'll be able to sort of set them up to step back a little bit. All right. Well, thank you for playing the hyper fast round one, one, well, really two last questions. One, uh, can you tell the listeners out there a little bit about your course on, on buying Oh yeah. Businesses. Uh, you know, I just joined the mastermind, so I'm looking forward to that, but just tell everyone out there what that is, how, how that works, where they can find it. Yeah. Um, so it's called unconventionalacquisitions.com or how to buy a small business.com. Um, and essentially what it is, is there's a course that you can go through. That's like way, it's a lot of content. It's basically hours of, um, you know, templates on how to buy a business and what the market is and how to figure out if you want to buy a business and what type of business. And the goal by the end of it is that everybody that goes through it should be able to walk away. And after, you know, let's call it 90 days of taking the course, uh, be able to actually really go buy their own first business. 
And I think, you know, we've already seen, we've only been live for like four or five weeks, um, but we've already seen five or six deals get done uh, through people in the group, which is really cool to hear about. Um, and it's teaching me that it's rationalized. Like a lot of people can do this. There's a repeatable model. So um, if you want to sign up for the course, that's an option. Um, and then if you want to sign up for the mastermind, that's for people who are really serious about buying a business. Um, and that is access to Ryan and I and people like you. And we all are in there talking about building and buying businesses. Um, and so those are the two options. And you can sort of dive into a bunch of information there. And then if you go to contrarianthinking.substack.com, that's my newsletter. That one's free, has stuff on cannabis, has stuff on buying businesses. And if you like what you see there, then get into the course and um, start executing instead of consuming. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to the course. Hopefully a lot of people check it out. Uh, one last question. If people want to get in touch with you or stay connected, I know you mentioned the newsletter already, but is there any other way that people can connect? Yeah, I think the best is probably Instagram. I'm Cody Sanchez, C-O-D-I-E-S-A-N-C-H-E-Z. So check out Instagram. Um, and, uh, and the other one is contrarianthinking.substack.com. That's the most content heavy one as opposed to if you just want to see my face, you know, waving from Instagram uh, and, and whatever my daily rant is there. So I think those are the two spots I would go. All right. Well, thank you for being on the show, Cody. It's been a blast. And thank you everyone for watching, listening, however you're uh, getting this great content. And we will see you next time. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Hyper Fat Show. Subscribe to us if you want to make sure you get the latest and greatest Hyper Fat Shows. And remember, we love reviews. Reviews help us bring better and better guests and improve our shows. So give us the good, the bad, and the ugly. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we will see you next time.